We have to be very careful that we know the facts. Never forget, the young man was driving his car home one night. He led his girlfriend out and was starting home, and his car stopped him out on a dark country road. And as he got out of the car, he threw the trunk open and said, Boy, this is great. Right in the middle of the night, I'm supposed to get home, supposed to get ready for work tomorrow morning. I'm dead tired already. Got a gas can, and I'll bet the gas can's got a leak in it. And he started down the road. He said, There's the only farmhouse for miles around, and I can just bet my boots that when I walk up that driveway, they'll have a dog that'll grab me by the leg and tear my pant leg open. When I get to the house, that farmer will get up, and he'll tell me to get out of there. He doesn't want to have anything to do with me. He went on and on. By the time he got to the farmhouse door and knocked on the door, and the farmer opened the door to find out what was the problem, he said, You can keep your gas. You can keep the whole thing as far as I'm concerned. I can rot right here. Really worked himself up, poor farmer. <laughs> Didn't know what was going on, see? You have to be careful that we know the facts before we jump. Seventh, determine the right opportunity to share with this person the steps of correction which God has taught us. Then when you go and talk to him, how are you going to tell him about his fault? You don't walk up and say, look, you clutch. There is a scriptural way in which to tell a person about their fault. And Lord willing, next Sunday morning, we'll talk about how do you tell your friend about his fault? How do we tell someone else about their faults? I know that this is, this is not evangelistic preaching, but I know one thing. If we can learn how to go to a brother or a sister and keep harmony and love within the body, that the rest of the world will look at us and they'll know that we're Christians because we have, what? Love one for another. Time and time again, we've had people come into this body that have walked out and told us, we sense the love of God in this body. Would you bow your heads? May I ask you this morning, I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit is here and the Holy Spirit knows what's in your heart. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And this morning you know whether you have abundant life or if you're having turmoil if you have seeds of destruction, if you have lost that first love, if you're drifting further away from God's truth, if there is a sense of judgmentalism in your heart, you know all these things. And you know that the Lord says that we're to remember those first works, that first love and the first desire we had for Him, that we're to repent of those things that are in our lives now, and then we're to return and do those first works. Maybe you've never been really, genuinely born again of the Spirit of God, and this morning you know that's step number one, to restore and bring back that peace and bring back a joy, bring a joy into your life that you, you, you've heard people talk about but you've never experienced, that you need to be born again. To know Jesus Christ is absolutely Lord of your life, to have repented of your past and given him control of your life. But then if you are, you determine that you are a Christian this morning and you know that you've lost your first love, you've backslidden, you've become judgmental, and God is speaking to your heart this morning, see, nothing that I say is going to do it. I am totally dependent upon this one fact that this is the Word of God that I'm trying to teach you and the Word of God will speak to your heart. It will pierce to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. I know right now that if you've been under the hearing of my voice that the Holy Spirit 
has made me say, everything I've said may not have been directly led of the Holy Spirit, but some of the things that I've said this morning, the Spirit of God has made me to say it because you're here. Now, will you let the Holy Spirit do the work that he wants to do in your heart, whatever it is? With your head bowed, will you right now acknowledge, Lord, you spoke to me about this this morning. I know that you spoke to me this morning. I'm not going to fight that because the preacher doesn't know what you've spoken to me about. It's just you and me, and I'm not going to fight that. You've spoken to me this morning. And whatever the cost, I want you to correct that in my life. Whatever it takes. I give you complete control. I give you power of attorney in that area of my life this morning. Whatever it costs, you bring that about to where it is what you want it to be. Will you tell him that right now? What's beautiful is he's talking to different ones about different things. Whatever those things are, that's what you need to deal with this morning. Whatever the Spirit of God is talking to you about this morning, will you deal with it? Now, i tell you something. Don't ignore it. Don't keep pushing it back in the back of your mind. God loves you, and He wants His very best for your life. He's promised the very best for your life if you won't push it out of, the, out of your mind. He's knocking this morning. He's saying, will you please let me have this area of your life? Will you give it to Him gladly? Even in the shambles it's in, just give it to him. Say, Lord, I confess that area is a shambles this morning. I'm asking you to let the Holy Spirit come in and straighten up that area of my life. Whatever it takes. He knows exactly what it takes. But he's waiting for your permission to do so. Is there anyone this morning by the upraised hand say, Pastor, I know that I know I need to be saved. And I want to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life this morning. Pray with me. Just slip it up and slip it down. I'm, I know I'm lost. I'm not fooling anyone. Oh, others may not know, but I know. That's what's important. I know I'm lost. If I were to die right now, I know I wouldn't go to heaven. I know it. But I want to go to heaven. I want to be in God's perfect will in my life. I want to know the joy and peace that he talks about. I want to have the hunger for the things of God that I ought to have. Pray for me this morning. I need to be saved. Will you, will you just slip it up and slip it down anywhere? Is the Spirit of God speaking to you this morning? That's all it takes. He's patient. How many of you this morning, just by slipping up your hands, say, Pastor, God has spoken to me about a specific area and I've committed it to Him completely? Just slip up your hands. Yes. Yes, I see those hands. Praise the Lord. Spirit of God doing his own work. Yes. Thank you, Father, for the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit. We commit this truth to you because you've given it to us, and we yield it back to you, and we just confess what the Word says. My Word shall not return unto me a void, but it shall accomplish the purpose whereunto I have sent it. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' precious holy name, amen. Matthew chapter 18.
I'm going to be sharing further with you this morning concerning the ten basic convictions that every man should have for his home. And we're in the last part of the ninth conviction, which is my words must be in harmony with God's word, especially when reproving and restoring a Christian brother. I'm not going to do a lot of review, but simply to say that that we were talking about backsliders. What should be our response to a backslider? And the first thing was that we should realize that inasmuch as you see him sliding back from an original position, it may be evidence that he was never saved in the first place. Now, I say that because time and time again there are many people who say that they've had a born-again experience, but evidence does not prove that out. Say that they've had a born-again experience, but it has not been according to scriptural principles. And consequently, don't just assume that someone is a Christian. We have, the evidence will be there. Read the book of James over and over again. It says if you have faith, it'll come out in works. It's automatic. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. And I think that's the same principle here. First of all, he might not be saved. Second, know and explain the cost of backsliding. First of all, that he can expect chastening. If you're going to talk to someone about backsliding and you begin to talk about the seriousness of it, they need to understand that God says he will chasten us if we backslide from him. The second thing is, that we may die prematurely. In 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, it talks about those around the Lord's table not considering the Lord's body. It says, For this cause many are sickly among you, and many sleep. This is one possible result of backsliding. Third, that he can be fully restored. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes it shall have mercy. And that's one of the beautiful parts of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that they can be restored. The third thing was that we should endeavor to restore them. Matthew 18:15 gives us the, the procedure in restoring a brother. Now, let me say, first of all, that that must be our endeavor in every instance. Matthew 18:15 says, If your brother shall trespass against you, and we've covered these points already, go to him in the right spirit. And we use this chart here to show what it would be to go to him in the right spirit. First of all, that is, if his failure improves the opinion I have of myself, I'm judging. If his failure decreases my concern for the faults I know I have, I'm judging and so forth. We won't go into that, but that's what we covered the last time, to go to him. And then we said that the next point was to tell him his fault. Matthew 18, 15. These neglected steps, if followed, would answer Christ's prayer in John 17 that they may be one, even as you and I, Father, are one. All right? Tell him his fault. Someone says, well, brother, you're not going to get me to go to someone when there's something between us. He might haul off and hit me, or he might get angry, and I might do something desperate. Always remember, if you and I are willing to do what God tells us to do, God will take care of the circumstances when we go to do what he tells us to do. There have been many times I've known what the Lord wanted me to do, and I'll be honest with you, I was shaking in my boots. Satan gave me every imagination possible as to what could go wrong. And I found out that when I got there that the Lord had already been there and taken care of all those matters of which I feared. That's the first thing we have to realize. In 1 Corinthians 13, if we go in an attitude and spirit of love, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become as a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and on and on and on, it's got to be in an attitude of love when we go to a brother who has offended us. And then you say, well, brother, what do I say to him? This is very important. 
This is one of the things that helped me with the Bill Gothard seminar, and it's something that I need to be reminded of over and over again. And I want to say again to our families, if any of you can pay any price necessary to get to the Bill Gothard seminar, go. If you've only gone once, believe me, you've only begun. Every person I've ever known that's gone the second time has come back and saying, Boy, I don't remember half of three-fourths of the stuff he talked about from the last time. Boy, my eyes were just open to so many new things. And he is presenting new truth all the time. So I want to encourage you, if you can go at all, don't miss the Bill Gothard Seminar. Pay the price. It's worth it to go. And I've told you this material that I'm sharing with you is from the Bill Gothard Advanced Seminar. The answer to approach him is to approach him with the following statement. Might be wealthy to write this down and memorize it. I always want to give a good report about you to anyone who asks. Isn't that good? I don't want to give a bad report about you. I always want to be able to give a good report about you to anyone that asks me. For this reason, I wonder if you could explain something that I'm not sure I understand. You know, most offenses are due to misunderstanding. Many times, two people will be saying the same things, but they'll be saying it differently, and they'll be heard differently. But when you can come together and say, will you please explain this situation to me? In other words, you don't go and say, look, buddy, you offended me, and you're either going to straighten up or else you're in trouble. Now, you know, a strong answer like that just brings back another strong answer. And the Scripture says, a soft answer turneth away wrath. If you go to them and say, hey, really, there's been a misunderstanding here. There's something I don't understand, and I, I never want to have to, never want to be able to say anything but good about you. And this situation has come up, and I believe the problem is that I didn't really understand the situation completely. Would you explain something to me, please? Now, how can a person get offended if you come to them in that attitude? That's why the Scripture says that we're supposed to go to him. All right? Now, if he has offended you personally, if it was directed against you personally, you might say, is there something that I have done to cause you to react to me in this way? Now, what have you done? You have not blamed him, but you're saying there's something here. Would you please help me to find out what it is about me that causes an offense to you? What did I do? What did I say to you? I really don't want to offend you. Will you please forgive me if I have done? Will you tell me what I've done so that I can ask you to please forgive me? How many of you could get mad at anyone if they approached you that way sincerely with love? You see, when, when we start to go to someone, Satan says, Oh, don't do that. Don't you know what he'll do? Don't you know what will happen? But if we'll go in 1 Corinthians attitude, 13 attitude of love, in Galatians 6, Go to them in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself also, lest you be tempted. You go to them realizing that we are all one. We're, we're one in Christ. If we've been saved, we're one in Christ. And that the toe cannot say, I don't need the thumb. The ear can't say, I don't need the eye. But we go saying, let's get the body back into function here properly. I imagine right now, Mindy is very thankful that she's got a right hand to support that right leg when she makes a misstep. Can you imagine the hand saying, hey, you're on your own? I wanted to say one other thing here, too, and that is if, if you have caused the offense, God's Word has something to say to you also. See, God always works on both sides. If someone has offended you, it says that you're to go with them with this type of an attitude and say, can you tell me how I offended you and what there was that caused this feeling? And, but what if you offended someone else? You say, well, I'll stand back and wait and see if they'll come to me. 
Would you look with me at Matthew, the fifth chapter? Just back a few chapters, Matthew, the fifth chapter, tells what you and I should do if we have offended someone else and we know that we have offended them. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath, what? Ought against thee. In other words, you've offended him. He feels badly toward you. Go ahead and pray, and I'll hear. Is that what it says? Leave your gift at the altar, before the altar, and go thy way. What? What's that next word? Puts it in order, doesn't it? Don't stay there at the altar. If you know someone has ought against you, that you've offended someone, he said, don't keep bringing gifts to the altar. In the Old Testament, they kept bringing all these animals to the altar and praising God and jumping up and down and saying, we're saved, we're saved. And God says, I'm nauseated to that kind of worship. If you know someone has something against you and you come to the altar, says, leave that gift at the altar and go first. First, that's not second. First, be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. You see, God is very, very orderly in this way. He said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God doesn't hear my prayer. So if I know that I have offended someone else and I just slough it off and say, well, that's their problem if I offended them, then God says, don't bring that gift to the altar. I want you to deal righteously with your brother and then come and you and I will have close relationship. The next one. If your brother shall trespass against you, go to him, tell him his fault between you and him alone. If we tell anyone else about the offending brother before talking to him, we create three problems. First, we prove to God and the ones we tell that we don't love the offender. That's powerful, isn't it? If someone has a, that you know of that has offended you, and you run to the phone instead of the throne and start telling others about the offense, the first thing it's evidence of is that offense has caused you to quit loving that brother. The scripture says, go to him and him alone, between you and him alone. Now, many, many times you'll find that, that when somebody hurts us, the first thing we do, we do. God deals with me in the same area. I have to be very careful to go off and, you know, to justify your own situation, go off and tell everybody else, do you know what they did to me? That's evidence that you don't really love that brother, according to God's word. You're to go to him and him alone. And in a deeper sense, we also prove that we don't love the Lord himself, who said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And his commandment's very clear there. It's tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't let it spread. Don't let it spread. You ever have been in your house and had somebody come home and say, oh, that Sunday school teacher, blah, 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 all the things the Sunday school teacher did to me? Or, oh, boy, that preacher, if you only knew what that preacher, I'm offended by that preacher, and so on and so forth. Jesus said, no, if someone has offended you, go to him and him alone first. Why? He goes on. Second, we tempt the listener to take up an offense against that person and may even destroy a strong friendship that might have existed between them. When you go to someone else and start telling stories about someone that's offended you, that person may have had high regard for that person up to that time, and Satan will use that thing to cause a friendship to be torn apart there and suspicion to enter into that person 
that you've told it to about the other person that offended you. And now you begin to have an army over here that stands around you to protect you and, and to stand up for you. And then he begins to get an army around him that stands up to protect him. How do you think Satan dis- divides churches? That's the beginning of it, isn't it? If we will bring our words into agreement with God's word, these things can be avoided. It says in Proverbs 16:28, a whisperer separateth chief friends. Did you hear what sister such and such did to me? Why, it was terrible. And there it goes, right down the line. Next, the third thing is we destroy the sincerity of our approach to him and hinder the potential of restoring him. It is for these reasons that the scripture warns, debate thy cause with thy neighbor himself and discover not a secret to another. Proverbs 25, 9. Let me just give you an example. Let's say that you have gone around and told eight or ten people about the offense that someone has given to you. And then you say, now I'm going to go and get this thing straightened out. And you go to that person and say, uh, is there something about me that has offended you? If there is, would you please tell me what I did or what I might have said? There's something here that I don't understand. And uh, could I ask you a couple of questions to clear something up? And he begins to tell you, and you say, oh, that was, I, I totally misunderstood. I thought that, this, and I, I understood, and all of a sudden you realize that it wasn't what it was supposed to be at all. And you say, will you please forgive me? And that person says, yes, I'm glad to forgive you. I love you as a brother. And you turn around and walk away and say, uh-oh. Oh, boy. I told nine other people about that. And the next week, those people come around to that other person and say, brother, we're really praying for you. We understand that, that you did thus and such. Well, no, I really didn't do thus and such. Well, such and such said you did. He came and told you this? Well, he told me and me and me. And what do you think is going to happen then? God's word is very logical, isn't it? If we have an offense by someone else, go to him and him alone first. Get it understood. Find out all the details. Many, many times I've had people come to me and say, Brother Webb, I understand that you said thus and such. And I'll go, I said, what? And they'll tell me. And I say, I, I don't even recognize that I said anything close to that. Can you give me a few more details? Well, I understood this and this and this. And I said, oh, wait a minute. I wasn't even talking about that over there. Do you have any idea how many times people go out the door of this church and tell me or tell someone else that someone must have told, them about, told me about them and that I was preaching right at them? Sometimes, some Sundays, four people go out the door and say, preacher, I think you're preaching right to me. Somebody must have told you about me. No, no, but I haven't talked to anybody this week. Well, they just had to because it was just, I said, hey, I tried to obey the Lord in what I say. And I've had people offended because they just knew that I was trying to get them. I've even had people leave this church and go to a bigger church because they felt that every time they came, I was prepared a whole sermon for a week just to get them. And they take offense and leave. They go to a great big church and they think, well, now I can hide in this church and nobody can find me. Preacher will never get to me here. We have to be very, very careful that we don't take up an offense. When we hear something, go to that person first and say, would you explain this to me? I, I've, I've got a real question about this, and there's been some misunderstanding, and I don't want misunderstanding. I love you. And I just want you and me to be able to sit down and try to work this thing out. Do you see that doing it God's way is the best way always? Anyone else besides him see it? That's the best way to do it? Praise the Lord. Okay. To give a bad report about a brother is to speak evil of him. 
And the scripture says in James 4, 11 and 12, He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law, by which, by the way, tells him not to do this. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? God says, don't judge your brother. Perhaps the most important reason to go to the offender first is to check out the facts. When we hear a report and share it with others, it is almost impossible to be accurate in words and in the inflection of our voice. That's one area where I've had difficulty. Some of you people know that I am very sober and very somber and I never kid. I, I just, you know how I am that way. And there are a lot of times I will say something in a kidding way. And I use the inflection of my voice and grin when I say it. And somebody standing over here might not see the grin on my face. And they trot off to someone and say, did you know the Brother Webb such and such? And I didn't mean it that way at all. I've just been kidding. And when you repeat a report to someone else, you may not get the inflections, you may not get the facial expressions, you may not get all the meaning that went with it. And when it comes to them, the hair on the back of their neck begins to stand up. And that's why it's very, very important that we go first to that individual and straighten out all the questions and circumstances. Now, time and time again, I say this as a pastor, and I know it happens to you also, that that is one of the areas that Satan will use the strongest to try to divide a church. So if you hear a report, don't carry that report to anyone. Go right to that person in love, first and foremost. Go to him, tell him his fault, between you and him alone. Number six. If he shall hear you, you have gained your brother. Now that's the most important thing right there, those last three words. Gained your brother. It reinforces again the purpose for which we should go. And this is, I think, the thing that we must constantly be seeking in our own heart to see if we're in a right spirit. We're going to go back to him to win him back, not to condemn him. We're going to go to restore him and not to expose him or her. This is the attitude that God wants us to bear out in our, in our daily experience with one another. Always is there some way I can... He may or she may have devastated you. It may have been something that was intentional. It may have been something that was unintentional. But the purpose of your heart and my heart, your spirit and my spirit, must not be to go and expose that person or to destroy that person but to go and to win that person back and to restore that person to fellowship in the body of Christ. If we go in any other attitude, we are open to being chastened by the Lord. Because the scripture says, with the same measure that you judge, ye what? Shall be judged. Now, I don't know about you, but you see a lot of people criticized in the Old Testament when it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that wasn't a mean judgment. That was a limiting judgment. Because you know how we tend to do. Did you ever used to play as a kid, some of you boys, where someone you, you'd hit someone and they'd hit you back? And then you'd hit them again and they'd hit you back to see who could take it the longest? They made a slip and really hurt you. The tendency was to explode and then to hit them about 15 times and get them down and stomp all over them. And that's what the Scripture was trying to stop. It wasn't the fact an eye for an eye and two for two like a vicious thing, but it's saying if somebody hurts you with just the eye, you don't go any further than just hurting their eye. The tendency, you know, somebody hurts you and you say, boy, I'm going to tear their head off. 
And the scripture here says there is a limitation, and that limitation is the love of Jesus Christ in you. And God says, if you don't go in the right attitude, and you don't judge them with the right attitude, that you will be judged with the same attitude you have toward them, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What do you want? We, we believe it and we teach it concerning giving. Give and it shall be given. The same measure you give, you'll return. And the scripture says, however you judge that brother over there, if you aren't gracious and and kind and loving to that person and understanding and, and forgiving, when it comes back, it's going to come back the same way to you. I don't know about you, but I don't want to build up that kind of a load to come against me. There is a law that's involved here. The grace and mercy of God is from everlasting to everlasting, but there is a law that's involved, and that is whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And that's why it's good for us to be sowing love and mercy and grace and forgiveness and kindness every day. Even to those, you say, well, boy, I'll tell you, if they'll treat me halfway decent, I'll treat them halfway decently. No. The Scripture says if you say that, you're no better than the, un the ungodly. I mean, if you could be good to them, they'll be good to you. But, boy, you step across the line, knock that chip off my shoulder, and look out. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for them that despitefully use you. If they take your coat, give them your cloak also. If they tell you to go a mile, go the second mile. That isn't the natural way of doing things, is it? No, it's the supernatural way of doing things. And God says if you'll do that, he will bless you. If you'll sow that, it will come back to you. Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be, attempt, be tempted. You know, the greatest offenses that can come many times in the body of Christ is through words. You think about it. Now, I haven't known lately, except a few experiences where I've read in the newspaper, where one Christian has gotten up and slugged the other one. I remember recently reading about a preacher in a church that got up and beat up some of the deacons. But uh, he's going to get them in line one way or another. Got up to the board meeting and just clobbered a few of them and was thrown into jail for it. But basically, our, uh, the offenses that come within the body are, are come from words. That's why the Scripture says, uh, David said, put a guard before my lips, Father, that I don't say things that will cause offenses. And that's why we have to be very, very careful. We talked some time ago concerning the tongue. That if our heart is filled with the word of God, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. If our heart is controlled by the word of God and by the spirit of God, then the words that come out will be gentle and kind and full of mercy and easily entreated. And you see, the speaker is not always aware that when they say something that someone else is offended. We need to be very sensitive of that. Now, I have to be very careful because many times I'm not as sensitive as I should be. This is one of the problems with the gift of a prophet. Here's black and here's white, here's right and here's wrong, and everybody should see that. And you say, thus saith the Lord. And I say that with love. And they go away, wounded, you know. And you don't want to be that way. You have to go back later and say, will you please forgive me? I didn't mean to say that like that. I mean what I say, but I didn't mean to say it like that. I, I, I should have said it much more gently than that. Now, I didn't mean to offend, but the way I said it offended, and I had to go back. Now, again, you see, the attitude that I go back with is, I offended you. Will you please forgive me for my being very, very uh, abrupt with you? But I would never go back and say, I'm sorry if the Word of God offended you. Now, I can say what's right, but if I say it wrongly, then I have done harm to someone else. So it isn't enough just to say what's right, but you must say it in gentleness and in kindness and in love. And then let me say, too, the listener doesn't always hear right. Never forgotten, the person that says, I'm concerned that by the time the words get out of my mouth, before they get into your ear, Satan's going to try to twist them. 
And he does that. I've said some things to people in a deep sense of love, and Satan has twisted that and made it mean something totally different to them. And I've had to go back and say, now please, don't add anything to what I'm saying. Don't take anything away from what I'm saying. I want to say this as gently as I can. This is what I said to you. Oh, I thought you meant, no, I didn't mean that at all. Really, I didn't. This is what I mean. Words are so easy to create offenses. And if they don't listen right, let me tell you something. When they pick it up wrong, boy, the devil kicks into high gear. He throws assumptions and accusations and questions and doubts, begins to attack you until the next time you see that person, there's just a rumbling and a growling inside, and he has done his work. He's divided. And many times that person will say, well, I'm not going to go to them just because they offended me. Yeah, that's their problem from now on. And that's why Jesus says, well, speak to both sides of you. Either you go to the person that offended you or you go to the person that you offended, but you're both responsible to go to the other person. You should be meeting on the way to each other's house if you're going to walk with me in obedience to God's Word. And then when you begin to explain and correct that thing according to what I showed you this morning, the Spirit of God can begin to bring some restoration. If he'll not hear you, then what? If you go to that person and ask for forgiveness and try to get restoration, he doesn't hear you. It is so beautiful to see how God has made a perfect plan. If we'll just obey his word, there will be no problems. Everything can be worked out in perfect order. Bill Gothard recently stated that one of the reasons his organization had the problems they had is because they did not follow the scriptural procedure in correcting sin within his organization. If we can learn this as a body of believers, how to correct sin and offenses within our own body, then when other people come in, they're going to stand back and see that we are one in Jesus Christ because we have love one for another. Now, let me tell you something. There's only a couple of us in the church that are absolutely perfect. Everyone else except just a couple of us are going to offend. You know who you are, the other one. Other than, that, other than us, everyone else is going to offend someone from time to time. And the Lord says, do you want to have peace? And do you want to have joy? Do you want to have harmony? Do you want to see you, yourself grow in grace and the others around you grow in grace and knowledge? Follow my procedure in seeking forgiveness and harmony and restoration. And I'll bless. And I'll cause fruit to come forth from that thing. You know, one of the hardest things in the world is to be able to go to someone and say, I am wrong. Will you please forgive me? I was wrong. Oh, the muscles don't want to say that. But Jesus says if we'll humble ourselves, he'll what? He'll exalt us, won't he? If we lift ourselves up, what? Just flies into my mind what Jeffrey saw in a little joke this past week in a paper somewhere. This man lying flat on his back and his legs flying in the air and his arms flying in the air and a great big thumb down on him. And the fellow was saying, Lord, Lord, why are you doing this to me? And this big voice was coming out of heaven and says, Cause you tick me off. <laughs> and sometimes I wonder why God doesn't do that to me. Not the two or three that are perfect here, but to me and some of the rest of us that constantly have to ask the Lord for forgiveness and try to get these things straightened out. If we'll do it God's way, God says that he will honor us and bless us and make us to be the body he wants us to be. If you have ought against a brother or a brother or sister has ought against you, don't let it stay and fester. Go to that person and make it right, seeking to restore that person or to receive that person. And when you do, if they 
sincerely ask you to forgive, you must. Totally, as an act of your will, from the depths of your heart, whether you feel like it or not, totally forgive. Because if you don't forgive, what? He doesn't forgive. And I don't know about you, but I want to keep that record clear. Amen? Thank you, Father, for this truth. Thank you for the instruction of your word that is clear and precise. Make us to know and understand how we as a body are to operate day by day. Father, we just, in the name of Jesus, rebuke the enemy over this body of people. I command him away, and Father, I come against all contention and aggravation, division, misunderstanding, hurt. In the name of Jesus, we bind them and command them away from this body of believers, and I ask that you would cause the Holy Spirit to come and fill every area of our lives with 1 Corinthians 13, with a sense of obedience to go to our brother, go to our sister, who has offended us or whom we have offended, and seek their forgiveness. In the mighty name of Jesus, we claim victory in this body. And Father, I pray that there will be none of us who will not be willing to let you do the healing in our lives day by day that you desire to do so that we can be fruitful in all that we do in the days ahead. We commit this truth to you now. In Jesus' name we ask it and for his sake. Amen. In order to teach on this, we have to go to Matthew, the 18th chapter. So if you'll turn to that, we have been going through Matthew 18, beginning with verse 15. I'm sure you've kept all these ten basic convictions in mind, and I don't know how many Sundays it'll have, take me to review someday. Just the same, that's where we are. We were going down through Matthew 18, 15. First of all, we said, if your brother shall trespass against you, go to him, tell him his fault. Now, it says to go to him in the right spirit, though. You can't just take that one verse. You have to know how to go to him, and that's why we touched on other verses. That go to him in the right spirit and tell him his fault. It's easy to know about someone's fault. It's terribly difficult to go to them and to share with them. But the Scripture says this becomes the requirement of a believer recognizing that that person, if we really believe that person is part of our body, we will go to them out of utter concern. Now, if you had a boil on your left arm, your right arm would be very, very concerned for that left arm. If a door started to swing and hit your left arm, what do you think your right arm would do? They'd say, look, he's going to get nailed. No, we know how it reacts. It immediately goes to its defense, or the shoulder will go to its defense, or the forehead, or whatever has to go to its defense. The, the foot will come out to defend it if it's going to get bumped or hurt because that part of the body has been injured. And this is what he's trying to teach us here in Matthew, the 18th chapter. Jesus is saying that because we're one, if somebody else offends us, there is a procedure by which, because we are one, we should go to that person and find a means of resolving it. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. We said last week, if you do it any other way, if you run off and tell your husband or run off and tell your wife or run off and tell your children or run off and tell your parents and go around to all the different ones in the church and tell them what he, how this person, he or she offended you first, that it does three things. First of all, it proves that you don't really love that brother or sister. 
If you loved them, you wouldn't tell everybody else. You'd go to that individual and realize that individual is going through a struggle. Second, it causes that person whom you tell to possibly take up an offense against that person also. If you go and say, brother, such and such did such and such, they'll say, you've got to be kidding. Well, he is something else that he did and immediately take up an offense, which is wrong. Now, he will have that offense even after you go to that person and find out maybe things weren't exactly as we thought it was. Third thing was we destroy the sincerity of our approach to him if, first of all, we go around and spread this offense to others. And then, let's, as I said last week, we go to them and find out that they didn't do or they didn't say what we thought they said or did. Then we go, oh, now, what am I going to do? I've told others, and they believe it. Now I've got to go back to them and try to stop it. And it's again like the pastor that I spoke of some years ago who had a lady in his church that came and said, will you please forgive me? Came to his parson. He said, will you please forgive me? I've been spreading gossip about you. He said, I certainly will if you'll do something for me. And he took her upstairs to the upstairs bedroom window, opened the bedroom window, took a pillow, ripped it open, and threw the feathers outside. He said, I'll forgive you if you'll go out and pick up all those feathers for me. She said, well, how in the world can I do that? It's windy out there. They'll, they'll just be everywhere. He said, well, I'll still forgive you, but I wanted, wanted you to see an illustration. Even though I forgive you, just like I tore that pillow and threw the feathers out the window, you could forgive me for tearing that pillow, but you can never get all the feathers back. And I wanted to use that as an illustration to show you that when you tell others things, even though I forgive you for it, the damage has already been done and can never be recovered again. So go to him first or to her first, and check out all the facts. Now, that's not what I say. That's what Jesus said. Now, I don't know whether you know it or not, but if we will do things God's way, his ways are not our ways, and our ways are not his ways, but his ways are always best. Do you know that? And if we'll do it his way, even though it isn't the natural way, even if it's much easier to do it another way, it'll always come out better when we do it his way. He says next, the sixth one is, if he shall hear you, you have gained your brother. If you go to him, say, this is an offense, I want to talk, and you find out that he had offended you, and he realized it, and he says, will you please forgive me? Immediately you forgive. And it's interesting, right after this portion, how Peter, you know what the first reaction was from Peter when he heard this teaching? He said, Lord, how many times a day do I have to do this? <laughs> Seven times a day? Is that the way we are? Well, Lord, I understand I've got to go and forgive this person if they offend me, but there's got to be a limit somewhere, you know. Isn't that just how we are? And Jesus said to Peter, no, not seven times a day, but 70 times seven. And you know, there will probably be some people around who will mark it down on a little, well, that's 14, 15, 16, he's getting there. And when you get up to 489 times, you'll say, boy, one more time and I'm going to let him have it. You know how we are? 70 times 7 is 490 times, and if, they, if somebody offends us 489 times a day, they'll say, boy, thank God, he only said 490 times. If he does it one more time, I've, just two more times, he's, you know. But what Jesus is actually saying is, I want you to go to the same extent that I go with you. How many times do I forgive you? How many times have I forgiven you? You know, sometimes I literally say, Lord, I just can't even perceive, I can't comprehend your mercy toward me. If I were you, and you did the things against me that I've done for you down through all the years that I've known you, I would get so aggravated, I'd probably stomp me out. Have you ever felt that way? God, I don't understand why you're... No, some of you don't. Remember, there's three or four of us here that, that would never have that problem. Remember? I don't understand the mercy of God, but I am so grateful that His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting 
toward them that fear him. You've gained your brother. If not, take two or three more to establish every word. Now, I just want to say again, all the way through the Scriptures, even in the Old Testament, it said never accept one man's testimony. Jesus, when he came against the Pharisees and Sadducees, said to them, you know, in your own law, you said that if two men testify to something, then it is right. Then it can be accepted as truth. And he said, my father and I both testify to the fact that what I'm saying is true. And, of course, the Pharisees didn't like that too well. But whenever you have two or three witnesses in God's sight, then that is a strong argument against that one that, that has offended you. In the Old Testament, if two or three people would witness against someone, they could be stoned to death. It was declared that they were wrong by two or three witnesses. But there was also another balancing factor. If the person who was supposed to have done this offense declared that person over there is lying, they would take them before a tribunal of priests and they would question them and cross-question them and just seek out every fact they could and bring in all the evidence if they found out that someone was a false witness to try to put this man to death. Whatever the punishment was supposed to be for that other man, they would do it to the false witness. Publicly. I understand there weren't too many false witnesses in that day. Take two or three witnesses to establish every word. And now, today we want to start right in with the next portion. It says, if he shall neglect to hear them. If you go to them, now this, remember again, this is the third step. If he shall neglect to hear them, then tell it to the church. First of all, I want you to know that this is an expression here of the local assembly. This is not the church of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that I am not building the kingdom of God exclusively right here in this building here. You and I are not laboring with the only body of Christ in the world. We are a part of the total body of Christ. We are a local expression of the body of Christ. There are some of the body of Christ over here at the Baptist Mission, some over at the Presbyterian Church, some down at the Nazarene Church, some over here at two little churches, I understand, are starting in the back of a building over here. There are some parts of the expression of Jesus Christ's body in those churches. Hope you understand that, that it isn't going to be just Baptists or Charismatic Baptists or, you know, they're not the only ones that are going to get into heaven. But he says, you tell it to the church. There was a place of local authority to which they could go. Now, whenever you have a local authority, there must be a local standard of authority. We were talking again this past week. I was with some other pastors, and uh, they got talking about the fact that, uh, of, of discipleship and submission. And I've always said that there are extremes in every area. There are some people that feel that submission means that you bow and grovel and crawl before someone. That isn't what the Scripture is talking about. But there is a place where God calls people into a particular ministry. And when they are called, that person will see in the fruit of their labors a ministry raise up. And then there are some that say, well, in every ministry there should be five or six heads. I will say it again. You can write it down in indelible ink if you want to. You cannot find it in the dealings of God all the way through the Old Testament anywhere. All two, three, four, five, and six-headed animals belong in a circus. God has always worked through a person, not a committee. Now read it in the Scriptures. And some of them immediately say, Oh, Brother Webb, though, Paul called the elders of the church of Ephesus out to meet him at the coast. That's right. And if there were in this Lake Mary area, if there was one church that started and it spawned six other churches, 
by one apostle who came into the area and started the first church and they spawned other churches and that apostle who started the first church were to appear over at Daytona Beach and say, come over, the elders of each one of those churches, the elder in each one of those six churches would go over and see Paul and it would say that the elders of the Lake Mary Church went to Daytona Beach to meet the apostles. Never have I seen a multiple-headed body function. There's always problems. He says, take it to the church. Take it to that local expression. Now, but remember, though, this is the third step. That person, first of all, was approached by the individual. Scriptural. If they won't listen, that's tough. If that offended you, you know, sit on it. Then you take two or three more with you, and that person becomes very belligerent, will not respond, says, I don't care that I hurt you or not, and you're just too soft-skinned. Just get out of the way. Don't worry about it. If they will not respond, then it says you take it to and tell it to the church. Now, again, it's not telling it to the church to expose that brother or sister. It's telling it to the church because the church is God's position, God's body of authority, and to enlist them to help in the reproof of that person. I don't know whether you know it or not, but generally speaking, when somebody finds out about somebody else's sin, that becomes an impetus for that person to not allow that sin to control them anymore. The more people to find out about somebody having sin in their lives will be an impetus for that person to get rid of that sin because they know the next time that brother or sister comes around, they'll say, how are you doing in your struggle, brother? I'm praying for you. And they have to say, well, uh, 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 very embarrassing. Or they can say, praise God, keep on praying. I'm getting victory. Satan's delight is to get a man or a woman to think that no one must ever find out that there's sin in my life, that I have a weakness, that I have a problem. And if I can just keep it from everyone else, someday I'll get victory. That isn't what the Scripture says. It says, confess your faults. I've got a problem here. But nobody else in the world has my problem. That's a lie out of the pit of hell. Every sinless person here, please stand up. Don't do it. I wouldn't want to embarrass you. And Satan's only got so many tricks in his bag. And he's pulling them out on every one of us continuously. And it's only by the grace of God that we find victory through praying for one another in our need. But you take a sin that a person's committing, who Satan has told them that no one dare find it out, and if one finds it out, and then three find it out, and they still won't, and you take it before the church for a long time, I've either got to shape up or ship out. Well, that's what the Word of God says. And it becomes a humbling thing to that individual after a while. Now you say, well, why do you want to humble them? Because the Word of God says that God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. If a person, you know, there are a lot of people that walk around looking, walking and talking and acting like they're the top feather in a peacock's tail. And if you suddenly show them where there is a desperate need of repentance in their life, boy, that tail feather just flops down. And God says, now I can begin to deal with that person. He can't deal with a person who is determined to stay arrogant and not admit his need or his sin or his fault. But the Word of God says that there is need of humbling. Now, I want you to know very clearly what the Word of God says if a person will not soften their heart, will not respond when that one person comes to them and when three people come to them and then have to be brought before the church. Will you turn with me to Proverbs, the 29th chapter? Proverbs 29, verse 1. Proverbs 29.1. Now, I think that it would not be desecrating the Scripture to put an S before the first word there either, do you? Wouldn't that fit? 
He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Now that's there for a reason. God is gracious. God is merciful. He will come to a person and say, you need to turn around. You need to turn around. You need to turn around. And if that person keeps hardening his neck and saying, I won't, I won't, I won't, God says, that's far enough. And then he brings judgment to that person. Look right across the page to Proverbs 28, 13. He that, what? Covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and... What does that include? Repentance, doesn't it? Quits it, hates it, declares it for what it is. Shall have mercy. Again, another translation, shall have another chance. So bringing them before the church is not to injure them, not to revile them, not to destroy them, but rather to bring them back into a point of restoration, repentance and restoration. Now, James 4, 6 tells us, God giveth grace unto the humble. What's grace? Some people have said what I used to always say, well, grace is unmerited favor. That is not the best definition. I like Bill Gothard's definition much better. Grace is the desire and the power to do God's will. God gives the desire and power to do his will to the humble. He will not give it to the arrogant. The proud, he seeth afar off and hates it and despises it. And so God says you have to bring them through this process of going one person, going with three people, and then bringing them before the church. And if that doesn't humble them, then they're in trouble. God is using this experience as a cleansing agent within the church. First of all, for that individual. But it doesn't stop with that individual. The Lord has a purpose in this thing. It becomes a cleansing agent to the whole body. There may be others in the body with the same weakness. I've known of churches where immorality sprung up, and it was dealt with quickly. You should have seen the cleaning up job that happened throughout that body. They mean business in this church. Some of them grabbed up their unholy garments and fled, and others came to the pastor and confessed the problem and began to be prayed for and dealt with and ministered to and counseled, and they got it straightened up. Others had been a little bit loose as far as their job was concerned. You know, well, the company's got all, this, all these supplies and materials here. They're not going to miss just a few boards or a few nails or a few screws or a couple of pots and pans or a few pipes. They're not going to miss that. I can take those home. And when they found that there was one in the church doing that and they dealt with it publicly because the person would not be corrected, they brought it before the church. Suddenly, there were others that started going back to their employers and saying, I sinned against God. Will you please forgive me? I want to pay you for all the things I've taken out of this. There is a cleansing element in dealing with these situations according to God's word. Second thing about it there is that you should be praying and fasting as a church also. It comes back for the church to begin to examine itself. The church might say, is there something about our fellowship that has allowed or caused that brother or that sister to stumble like this? What is there within our body and our fellowship that brings a person to the place where they get that far away and they begin to, to ask for forgiveness and begin to seek that person and say, if I caused you to stumble, will you please forgive me? Look at 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You remember? Paul was talking about a young man there who had 
gotten into some horrible sin that even the Gentiles wouldn't have reported amongst them. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Now notice the next five words. And ye are puffed up. Look at you. You're going around saying, look how spiritual we are as a church. Oh, all the gifts of God are flowing in our body. It's exciting. I mean, there's words of knowledge and words of wisdom and prophecy and tongues and interpretation of tongues and healings. It's exciting to see all the things God is doing. And, oh, if you could only be in this church, it would be exciting for you. What a blessing it would be if you could be a part of our body. He says, you're going around puffed up. And you aren't paying attention to what's happening within the body. And have not rather, what? Mourned. That he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Paul says, this is a desperate situation that you're faced with here. And you're going around like nothing's going on. You need to deal with it. You need to be on your faces before God asking for forgiveness that God will deliver this body from this sin. Look at verse 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. Don't even have lunch with that person. If he calls himself a brother and you see he's walking in a disorderly way, Paul says, don't go on puffed up like you're that spiritual giant around him, but rather say, look, you won't deal with this thing in your life. I will not even sit down and fellowship with you in spiritual matters until this gets straightened up. How many of you know that's not being done today much? I'll read verse 12 too because it's very applicable. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? He said, I'm not talking about those that are outside the body. I'm talking about someone in the body who calls himself, calls himself a brother. Someone who declares himself to be a Christian who's living like this. He said, now I'm judging those that are outside the church. But then he goes on, but them that are without God judgeth, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. I'm going to judge the sinner. You judge the one who calls himself a Christian in the body. Deal with that sin. According to my order, deal with that sin. Don't just go around like, acting like it's not there. Go to them personally, two or three witnesses. If that doesn't do it, bring them before the church. Deal with it. And get down and ask God if there's something that's within this body that allows this thing to go on. If it's a teaching, or if it's an attitude, if it's a spirit, whatever it is, deal with it accordingly. And ask God for forgiveness. Now, Paul also reinforces this, not just with the members of the body, you say, well, brother, that sounds pretty good. I mean, here he puts this, you know, this Protestant pope at the very top, and he's supposed to be in charge of all these things, and he's, he's exempt, you know. No, he isn't. No, he isn't. That's why the Scripture says, don't eagerly seek to be in a place of leadership. He who is given much, what? Huh? Much is required. God doesn't say, oh, now you're up here, and now that you're in that position, you're just safe. I want you to look at 1 Timothy, the 5th chapter. 1 Timothy, the 5th chapter. Let me tell you something. This is one of the areas that has left the barn door open today in the churches. 
Someone said, show me a smoking preacher, I'll show you a drinking congregation. Show me a loose preacher, I'll show you an immoral congregation. 1 Timothy, the 5th chapter, verses 19 through 21. Against an elder, now by the way, the word elder, the word bishop, the word pastor, all of these are synonymous as far as the position in the scriptures are concerned. He's talking about a pastor, a pastor. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Now, I have known of occasions where one dear sister in the church will come before the board and say, I want you to know the pastor did thus and such, and the board begins to take action. That's not scriptural. One person, one man will come and say, I want you to know the preacher's stealing out of the offering bag. And they'll say, well, let's get rid of him. We'll just fire him. We'll learn him. He won't do that no more in other churches. And they proceed to do that. That is not scriptural. Because there's always, the devil always has a person with a spirit of accusation around looking for some way to discredit God's servant. Do you know that I was told years ago that this is why Billy Graham, in his travels in evangelism, always has at least one, if not two or three other men with him everywhere he goes. In his motel rooms, when he goes to eat, when he goes to pray, if he goes to study, he always has one or two other men in his office with him. And he's had occasion where enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ have had immoral women come with a photographer to the door and knock on his motel door, and when the door opens, to rush through and have that woman drop an outer garment on and grab a hold of him so the photographer can take a picture of him in an immoral-looking situation. One time it happened that way, but it was found out that it was going to happen and so they stationed some policemen in the room right across the hall, and when it happened, Billy wasn't there, and he opened the door, and they were confronted with another policeman in plain clothes. And when they came through the door, one policeman from across the hall grabbed the camera and smashed it in pieces. They wrapped the coat around the lady and took her off to jail and found out. But you see, there has to be witnesses because the enemy's going to be there to try to set up situations to destroy the testimony of elders or those whom God has called into the ministry. There should always be two or three witnesses, but now let's go on. Them that sin rebuke before all the whole body. That doesn't sound too exciting, does it? Not if you're there. <laughs> rebuke before all that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. That's a pretty good crowd of authority, isn't it? I charge thee that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Doing nothing by partiality. If an elder sins and there are witnesses to that sin, don't say, well, brother, we all fail, we all sin. We'll just keep this quiet. We won't say a word, Danny. We'll just keep this quiet. And, and I know that you'll get things straightened out. You know what happens? Others in the church sooner or later will begin the same process. But let me tell you, you bring one up before the body and say, this man has fallen into sin and thus and thus and thus. Any others back there are going to gird up the loins of their spirit and say, I better clean up my act. I'm saying it again. Because we have failed and compromised in this area in the church today is one of the major reasons we're in the mess we're in.
God has not called us to unrighteousness, but to holiness. And it's got to be from the top to the bottom. The ninth point, it tells us what to do if he doesn't even listen to the church. I hope that these truths are going to cause us as a body to know how to act and react in the days ahead. Now, let me tell you ahead of time. As God begins to bless this congregation, there's going to be a lot of different things come through that door. And we're going to have to have understanding and wisdom and biblical understanding and foundation upon how to deal with situations. They may look like angels coming through that door, and they may be, but remember there are two types of angels, the Lord's and someone else's. And God give us discernment and understanding to know how to deal with these situations as they come up. We must do it. My words must be in harmony with God's words, especially when restoring, rebuking and restoring a brother, reproving and restoring a brother. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, that even though mercy is manifested, yet justice and righteousness are supreme. And we just love you today because we know you never change. You're always the same. And your mercy toward us is from everlasting to everlasting. God, forgive us. Forgive me for the many, many times that I fail to be what you want me to be. And by your grace, I'm asking that I will have that power to be and to do what you want me to be. Because I know that the Word of God tells us that you have come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Minister to our spirits this morning this truth. If there be any here that have been offended by another brother or sister in this body, that they'll go to that person and that that will be dealt with. That the Spirit of God will have free rule and reign. That when we come together as a body to worship, that our spirits will be so open to you that we'll have a clean conscience toward God and man and that you can begin to flow with power that's unlimited that others will be able to tell we've been with Jesus. Father, I ask that you administer to the spirits of those that are here this morning that if any have offended others or have been offended by others, that they'll not allow the enemy to get his foot in the door by not dealing with these things according to your word but that as a body of believers, we'll be able to be in harmony with what you've told us to do in your, in your word, that the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ will be made manifest here. We really want to be everything you want us to be, and so we ask you to show us, moment by moment, what we should do and say in these matters. In Jesus' name we ask it, and for his sake, amen. The Lord willing, I trust that we'll be able to finish the ninth conviction today. Matthew, the 18th chapter, verse 15. Matthew 18, 15. It says, if your brother shall trespass against you, go to him, tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hear you, you have gained your brother. If not, take two or three more to establish every word. If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. We said last week that the purpose for all these steps is not to expose and not to destroy one, but it's to restore a brother in the Lord and someone who has fallen. Then it's also, its purpose was also last week to warn others in the church that God does not condone sin in the church. 
The third thing was to cause the church to do some self-examining. Is there something that made this person do it? Is the church responsible for this sin? Remember Paul said to the church of Corinth, here you are, proud and boastful and everything, and you ought to be on your faces in fasting and prayer, seeking God's faces to find out why sin has gotten into the body like this. And then he said no one is to be excluded. Not only the sheep, but also the shepherds. If a shepherd is found in sin and there be two or three witnesses against them, expose them, bring them out, so that that thing will be stopped and sin will not continue on in the body. Now, Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and eyes and ears of understanding. We thank you that the Word of God is so clear, so precise. We thank you that we don't have to guess as to what you'd have us to do, but the real problem, Father, is being willing to do what you tell us to do. We ask that you do a work in our hearts of grace, the ability or the desire and power to do God's will, that you give us more of that each day. Minister these truths to our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask it and for his sake. Amen. The final step in that 15th verse is, If he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto you as an heathen man and a publican. This is the difficult step for many people today in the church. Let him be unto you as an heathen man and a publican. If you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto you as an heathen man and a publican. Again, he's talked to the local church, and he says, Treat him as one who needs to be one to Christ. Now, this is very, very important. He's saying, now, if you go to a brother and he has offended you and you personally have talked to him and he will not receive that and will not repent, will not ask for forgiveness, after you've gone in the right spirit, and we've talked about that on, the, on this series, then you take one or two or three witnesses with you and let everyone hear the words again. This is what you did to offend me, and I don't want any offense within the body. Can we resolve this thing? If you won't hear them, then take him before the church. And if you won't resolve it there then that's evidence that he really isn't even a Christian. Now you say, Brother Webb, that's awfully harsh. I didn't say it. He said, let him be what? Unto you as a what? What's a heathen man? Unsaved. Why does he say that? Well, if you will look over in 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15, 2 Thessalonians 3, is another verse that speaks in the same vein. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, just realize we all have freedom and grace today and we can all do our own thing. You all see that there in verse 14? And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, Paul speaking here, if, now, Timothy, I've given you the word to preach, and this is truth. This is the word. You preach it. Now, if you notice that there's some person there who will not obey our word that I've given you in this epistle, note that man and have what? That he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. It means that he does not become your enemy. But you deal with him on a different level now. 